Hello and welcome to episode 15 of the City Centric Podcast. I am your host Josh and I'm glad you're with me again. So I actually got a, a random message yesterday from Robin Mazumda, who people will know from episode 13, who is an urbanist and very much a neuroscientist in training, who's here in the summer uh, working at University College London. And we caught up and um, he actually dropped me a message saying randomly that he's available if we wanted to do something we spoke about, which was a bike-based podcast. So we're both very keen cyclists. Lists. Um, I'm sure that might have been picked up in previous episodes. Um, but obviously we have different experiences and different reasons to look at cycling, not just from the fact that we like that form of mobility, but also as students of urban life, of looking at mobility exercise and its relationship to mental health and these, these elements, we start to s- step out of ourselves and look at what it means in general for those who need cycling infrastructure, those who need pedestrian access infrastructure, how we have better equity from public space and how we move away from the big constant that has been a car-based culture. Now, that's not to say that cars are the worst thing in the world. They are incredibly important and they shouldn't disappear totally from our lives. But one of the questions we have to ask is how do we have better sharing, you know, almost to go back to childlike rules. And, you know, you have to be able to share, otherwise you can't play. So as I climb down off my soapbox there from that sort of little comment, this episode was recorded as we spent a sunny summer's evening cycling around some very beautiful areas in North London, stopping off for sort of conversations on route which we've recorded. Um, Some of this is also actually covered conveniently in the Neuroscience for Cities playbook, which was produced between our business, which is Centric Lab, as well as University College London, all for the Future Cities Catapult, who are a UK-based organisation helping make cities better by identifying future trends, future ideas, future technologies, and giving them a catalytic boost to understand how, essentially, UK business can be a great exporter to the world in making cities better. So anyone curious on this topic can understand what it means to have physical exercise, accessibility to infrastructure, and what that means to our bigger elements of sort of health, well-being, and productivity can jump on there. That's accessible via their website, which is futurecities.catapult.gov.uk. Sorry about that. Right, now getting onto the show, people will previously know Robin, but Robin is, as I said before, an urbanist uh, coming from a background around sort of clinical psychology. Um, I hope I've got that right for you there, Robin. But he's very much a neuroscientist in training and is very much interested in looking at how urban form can have forms of oppressiveness and oppression on people and how we value and grade our quality of life uh, with response to cities like that. So I hope you enjoy the episode. It's a quick one. It's off the cuff. Uh, it's recorded very much just holding an iPhone to our mouths as we talk, so there will be a little bit of background noise. Uh, I hope you enjoy it and catch up with you at the end of the episode. All right, we're sitting here on a gorgeous, sunny afternoon in late August. We're sitting here in Swiss Cottage, just off the edge of Primrose Hill. Uh, we're going to do a podcast today based around the theme of cycling. It's a beautiful irony that we're also opposite a Mercedes sports car and just a casually parked Ferrari, not only about 20 yards for us as a BMW goes past. So we've picked a, a lovely spot to kind of question the values of cycling in a city and what it means to, to people. But uh, more importantly, a lot of this podcast is meant to be catching up with Robin because you've been here for 
before this summer, uh, totally experiencing something else compared to a lot of the sort of uh, North American Canadian cities where you spend most of your time. So in, in, in one line, as opposed to my warble always, how have you found sort of living and breathing London this summer? And I must add a little caveat, you have come for possibly like the most dramatic summer I think we've had in as long as I can remember. So yeah, how, how's your time been in summer studying, living, breathing and looking at it from a, from a lens of how you lived your life in, uh, in Kitchener? Um, it's been energizing. Uh, I think I was at a point in my PhD where I needed a bit of inspiration and I got that from my time working with Hugo at UCL. And I think I was also just in deep need of living in a vibrant city um, as uh, where I'm doing my PhD in Canada is in a pretty small town um, that's dead on a Saturday night and I think the street that uh, I lived on or the area I lived in in London this summer was busier with people than you know this, this city I live in on its on its most hopping night. So between the people and the the education at UCL, it's been amazing. But a question I kind of have off that, just off the cuff, is do you feel that's something you can sustain? Because we always love something when we're on holiday, but uh, are there any things you kind of notice that actually that might grind on you? Do you think you can actually sustain, uh, you know, the freneticism of London having come from somewhere that's a little bit more chilled? Yeah, I've been thinking about that. I've been thinking about... Um you know, because it has been quite a bit of a honeymoon experience. It's been, you know, 26 degrees and sunny almost every single day here, which is not what I hear is typical of, of London. Um, and I've just had nothing but positive experiences. I think London can can be sustainable. I've actually been thinking about ways to get back here and possibly live here because I've enjoyed it so much. And I think the piece to me is looking at it, the city as a bit of a volume knob maybe or a dial where you can dial up and dial down. If you want to go full blast and, and really get the most the city has to offer, you can do that. But at the same time, um, you know, last weekend, um, my friend has a, uh, a houseboat and we just floated on the canal um, from King's Cross down to Hackney and I didn't feel like I was in the city. So I think that there are things that you can do in London that will allow you to not get overwhelmed by the the bounties that the city offers no it's cool it also like we were talking before about some of the you know the themes and ideas that we could be talking about but what you've just mentioned there and it does feel you know that it's like london and i think a lot of these major cities around the world that are are, are similar to london are already full of so much like there is an abundance of things to do but i always base the question of like what do we need to keep creating and i wonder whether it's we need to keep creating or we actually need to make some more things accessible more things open more things um you know have, have better equity of um of ideas of places but also of things of like how do people access them so we were talking just before about what it is to kind of cycle from you know one area of central london or a center city center to another in this particular i think you were saying it was going from the kind of you know center around tottenham court road heading out east and you know you are stuck trying to go down somewhere like uh clark and well road uh part of um you know any other roads around that which are just a crazy bus thoroughfare it's like a major like artery uh, going dead center east side of London and but the mental fatigue that that brought to you constantly doing a 15 minute journey 
you were saying that it was it was debilitating your choice. I think when we look at choice in a city, when we look at what somewhere like London has to dial up and the dial down, you need a lot of uh, equity in things like mobility and accessibility to kind of to gather those. And I think that's um, well, if we start like on the sort of first part of this uh, podcast, we're going to get on our bikes and cycle to a couple of different spots. But talking about how perhaps cycling is a, a, a strong point of building up your own strength in being able to discover and kind of own your choices of what you do in your environment. Yeah, I mean, having a bike in London has really opened up my eyes to what the city can offer. I think if I didn't have a bike, I would probably spend most of my time in Bloomsbury where I'm living or occasionally taking the tube out, but, you know, tube adds up with the cost as well. So just being able to say, I'm going to go explore um, Brixton or I'm going to pop over to South Bank with a bike just is so much more possible. But at the same time, having the routes that allow someone like me who's pretty new to London to feel safe um, and to feel uh, not stressed out uh, by cycling is is so important. Um, so I've been doing a lot of my research in the city, um, and it's a like you said, it's a 15 minute bike ride. But the prospect of having the bike down Clerkenwell Road in Old Street, where there isn't any cycling infrastructure, where there's a lot of cyclists um, and very narrow, narrow roads, given the type of um, you know trucks, buses, and cars that move through there. I just didn't want to do it. Whereas if I needed to bike over to Tottenham uh, Court Road, um, there's a beautiful bike lane on uh, Tavistock Place, which is right where I live. That to me seems effortless. And it's about the same amount of time. And it just really communicated to me how important good infrastructure is, especially in a city like London, you know, where people are on the streets. In Canada, the big argument is, well, there aren't enough people riding bikes. There are enough people riding bikes here. So, yeah, I think giving people um, equitable or making the roads equitable and giving space to people who need it, whether they're pedestrians or cyclists, is, like, so key to how someone experiences uh, a city. Cool. There is another point to that, but uh, I think we're going to save the uh, the next question for our next destination. So we've picked up our bikes. We've cycled along. We're now in St. John's Wood Gardens. And uh, having been in London for 33 years of my life and spent a lot of time actually in northwest London itself, I've never actually been on this little greeny patch. Um, it's one of the beautiful things about London. You keep discovering little parts. And it's one of those lovely things about these ancient cities built from no apparent structure whatsoever is you find something new and you can find it every day. And there's a great uh, David Bailey quote on that where you can walk down. It, you somewhere around sort of walking through London and you can always find a new road you'll never get bored it's a it's a classic remake of an old one um but we're sitting here the sun's slowly setting as it's forming the uh, the trees and the leaves to go nice and golden and yellow uh but as we're here sort of sitting on some deck chairs where we were picking up was the idea of how the desire to travel to a location automatically start changing your affordances of what that means from your life in, in that perspective you know if you don't have the ability to access somewhere or it is too fatiguing for you to access somewhere it's reducing your affordances and there are ways that we've discussed before that cities can be 
you know, quite prohibitive and quite exclusive by the fact that if you aren't highly mobile, if you aren't big and strong, if you know, if arguably a lot of the time, if you're not a big, strong man, it's very hard for you to truly access a city from everything from curb heights to the way that doors even open to the way that you might be exposed in certain environments. So, uh, picking up that from a mobility aspect, uh, Robin, just to kind of throw it back to you and some of perhaps some of the research that you've been doing here and looking at how. You know, uh, if we just pick cycle infrastructure, but actually in broader sense, let's look at pedestrian-based in- infrastructure as well. Having that kind of really accessible physical affordance, what that might mean to your own sort of mental affordance, what you know, your psychological affordance, your perceptions of well-being in, in your movement, and what that means to you, and what you've kind of been asking people whilst you've been uh, here in London in part of your research, but also some of the stuff you've generally been covering as uh, an urbanist and very much a cyclist as well. Yeah, um, I like the concept of affordances. I think about in Canada, um, in most Canadian cities, which are really designed for the car, if you own a car, your biggest pain point is going to be getting stuck in traffic. And in most places, that's not even an issue. Um, and, but, and so when you look at affordances, like if you own a car, you have a multi, you have the most affordances you possibly could in a city. Whereas if you, are a cyclist primarily, or you're a pedestrian, or you're a person that uses a mobility aid, your affordances are significantly limited. And most of the time, it's because you just don't feel safe. Or there isn't an actual connection to where you want to get to. Um, In the community I I live in, there's a strip of, um, in Kitchener, there's a strip of stores that people need to access. There aren't many places you can get groceries. We live in a bit of a food desert. And I was, one day I thought I will walk to the grocery store and just, you know, instead of, instead of taking the bus and there weren't actually any sidewalks. And so when I thought about that and when you look at cycling infrastructure in cities, like even in London, we have to start thinking about these connections as, you know, if there's if there's a sidewalk somewhere, there should be a, a cycling lane, a protected cycling lane, because we need to have the space actually carved out um, to get to these different places. And so I think someone's world gets a lot bigger when the connections between where they are and where they want to go to are stress-free um, and a pleasant experience. I think people are just generally averse to things that are stressful and they're not going to do them. And we're looking at trying to get more and more people cycling. I think that one of the key things that we need to like really examine is how pleasant is someone's experience. And if you make it seamless and if you make it safe and you make it enjoyable, then, you know, we're going to get more people out on their bikes, which I think in London is a huge, huge, um, it should be a huge priority given, you know, the emissions and like air pollution. I know that on the car free day a couple of weeks ago, they, Plotted, I think the last three car free days, um, that Sunday compared to any other Sunday, and like air pollution was significantly lower, you know, and um, in a city like London that's getting more and more congested, yeah, making those connections easy, making opening someone's world up in the city, and at the same time, you're probably going to be doing something that's necessary for the for the sustainability of the city itself. 
I think the air pollution is important, but I think it was like an 80% drop. That figures in my head. I can fact check that and perhaps catch up with it at the end of the, the podcast. But I think it was about an 80% drop um, when, it, when the London Marathon was taking place. And, you know, it goes beyond saying it's a necessary thing. We have to try and understand as a society to go. There are too many emissions that are coming out. Um, one of the solutions coming forward and again it's really it is coming from the uh vehicle industry is the autonomous vehicle or you know so will we have utilization of an asset be more efficient and can that asset be green as well you're kind of like okay that's one solution but you know part of the the journey of our business and what it's been you know our business eccentric and what it's been working with scientists and what it's been working with engineers is kind of going yeah that's cool but is that actually the problem and really trying to drill down otherwise you're just kind of painting a turd you're painting over a rusty bike to use like another analogy you're only finding like a short-term kind of like sticker or band-aid to go over something and it, it was a, it's a question that I, I kind of want to ask from an idea it's a kind of a selfish question and I think it's always just good to kind of open up these thoughts and just you know let people say no that, that's bs you're on the wrong line but um and feel free to go with this Robin but the idea that we need to move a lot as a society. Um, you know, you've talked about, uh, you know, in Canada and places, you know, other places in North America, we do have a very much car-based culture. But I think it goes beyond that as well. We we have a culture where we've, a, a macro culture and a macro kind of society where we are encouraged to move. We have a lot of mobility uh, put upon us. Like the idea that if you haven't moved, you haven't seized, you haven't done, you know, families are encouraged or people are encouraged encouraged to move to different cities um you know this is something that's huge in you know certainly in in the united states the idea of just bouncing and moving between cities for new jobs you know separating from your family but that does mean that you are therefore required to move back or to, to sorry to travel back and one of the things we're starting to see are this the kind of like the hidden consequence you mentioned before about emissions like one of these hidden consequences has been emissions um but it's also a constant process of everyone needing to move because perhaps we have more disparate uh, ways of living now that we've created so one of the questions when we start to look at how do we make our cities safer um, on one side it could be is the green autonomous vehicle or actually are we better off trying to question what we actually are trying to build values of our city of actually needing to move less having more things located around us I don't know what your your views around that are yeah, I think um, that's just, just so many things that factor into that. I mean, I was in San Francisco last year and uh, I was talking to my friend about how insane the rent was there. I think it was like $6,000 for a one-bedroom apartment. And there was a story about a guy who rented out a box that he put in someone's living room, <laughs> like living in like a, a kid's fort that we used to like play around. And like, le- like legitimate, this isn't like an onion story. This guy literally built a box and rented it out for like $1,000 a month or something ridiculous like that. And I was talking to him and I'm like, if you, I'm like, you're, you know, a, a a, a budding entrepreneur, you know, you know Mark Zuckerberg, but you're still making pretty good money. If you're barely getting by, or my friends that are physicians or my friends that are lawyers, if you're barely getting by, living not even in the core of San Francisco, like in an, an adjacent kind of community, 
how are the people who are doing the hard labor that aren't getting paid much, like, where are they living? You know, what's happening with that? And and the reality was these people live in a very... Um, they live far away, like two to three hours, um, and where there where there isn't transit, they have to they carpool in. And so basically what's happening in our cities is we're really prioritizing, we're making it really good for the people who have lots of money. And I think this idea of having to move around is probably a bigger problem for those who don't have as much um, privilege or capital. They have to do all the traveling so that, you know, the, the yuppies who live in the core who want to, you know, uh, walk to work and stuff. Like, for them, it's not a big of a, an issue. So I think one of the solutions is affordable housing and densification. You know, um, people people are always saying, well, I have to move out to the suburbs to uh, afford to live, and then they, they drive into the city or something like that. That's being subsidized by taxpayers. Like, people are paying for that. It's being paid for with the highways. It's being paid for um, if a city does get the funding to build a, a transit line super, super far out. So I think, like, dense cities, um, not all skyscrapers, but, you know, <laughs> the missing middle, this this mid-sized housing. And we see that a lot, actually, in London or places like Berlin or, like, Amsterdam, where there's not a lot of skyscrapers, but people, a lot of people are jam-packed in one area. I think that's how we get to this idea of, like, reducing the need to move around so much, um, where all of your needs are met, where you can work in the community that you live in, where you can get your groceries in the community that you live in, where your friends live in the community that you live in. The one thing that I learned in London is that you go for pints after work um, on like a Thursday with your friends that you you know that you work with otherwise you won't see them because they live in other parts of the city so your friends are largely people that live in your community and the people that you work with you try to see in a social way in midweek um because if you don't live near someone you're not going to see them you know um yeah so part of like that densification piece is like how do you get um how do you get people around in 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 the dense parts and and that's not going to involve i think the autonomous vehicle the green autonomous vehicle I ask myself, what problems is this solving? One is obviously emissions, if it's green. Um, the other might be the issue of having to park it because the idea is these things will just like roam around, you know, waiting to be used. And although I'm kind of confused about that because I, as I understand it, people want to own these things. I'm like, well, if you, it's moving around and other people are using it, I don't know. Anyway, so there's a lot of questions that need to be answered. And I think... One of them is, is like, what need is this fulfilling? And if it's like I can fall asleep and sleep on the commute from my suburban house to the city, then, like, that's shit. Like, that's a bad answer. And that's something that I don't think we should be subsidizing as cities. And uh, and I think, I mean, the other, the other thing that people are talking about is how you have to wear these, like, stupid high-vis vests and, like, they're building these these special jackets you wear that they're... Because they're, they're predicting what the need is going to be for pedestrians and cyclists for these vehicles to see the see us. And one of them is this ridiculous suit that the, makes it easier for the car to detect you. That sounds like some dystopian future to me. So instead of that, instead of needing these autonomous vehicles that we can sleep in so we, you know, commute... Our three-hour commute isn't one where we have to stay alert, is, like, how how do you increase densification? And part of the part of that is allowing more sustainable ways to get around a city in quicker ways, and perhaps even going car-free. I think it's super interesting 
when you what you were just saying with regards to you know this is all paid by taxpayers so you know we, we say yes to things we say no to things but actually behind the scenes you're probably still paying for something that you actually said no to and um this is something that's i've i found really interesting looking at science and where it's kind of going at the moment is um the more sort of mature the science is getting the better we can start to evaluate decisions uh that trickle up to an element of perhaps economics and this is you know talking before about the idea of okay do people of certain sort of socioeconomic backgrounds or situations have the affordances to have almost uh, you know social mobility in that way so the, the question is could a simple piece of infrastructure or actually you know densifying key worker housing offset costs that you know the hidden costs that are uh, occurring elsewhere i think that's one of these opportunities we've got to start evaluating when looking at things like uh, accessibility and mobility even if it's just starting at cycling and the ability of people to move backwards and forwards what else is that compensating equally encouraging and this isn't just bashing cars we will still need cars we will still need that type of uh movement i like i, I you know i i'm not gonna i can't be a hypocrite i just hired a car for a, for a trip um you know last week and we needed it but it still needs to be understood in it in its own context and so when we start to think about how can we mitigate or offset a lot of the sort of the deeper mental health issues social health issues that are caused by poor infrastructure uh, we start to have a better kind of you know, more holistic argument in evaluating this type of density and this type of cost, who, whether it's a local government that may be bearing it, if they can see actually from a social impact point of view over the next 10 years, this is likely to have a reduction. I think that's one of the future opportunities that we need to start evaluating, you know, uh, moving science, moving scientists in with sort of data science, in with location analytics to then look at what are these simple, perhaps physical affordances that can have a much bigger sort of mental health affordance uh, that we can start to do something very simple I actually find a lot of city in infrastructure can actually be very very simple but almost the decisions to get to it are really really complex um, that's just imagining random thought but as the sun sort of disappears from the trees around us we're going to quickly get on our bikes to sort of uh, one of the last little spots uh, and pick up the conversation from there So we've moved on a little bit. We have just watched the sunset over Regent's Park. We've uh, just been watching some swans disappear uh, into the water as dusk falls on the lake where we are, which is very romantic. And we're watching couples sit with bottles of wine, enjoying a lovely bit of central London. That's For the skyline, all you can see is trees. It makes a lovely difference to not look at buildings the whole time, even though you're essentially in the centre of a city. It's a wonderful oasis to always find. But where we um, last had the conversation, we were talking about uh, navigation we were talking about the accessibility we were talking about how infrastructure plays a, or can play a massive part in mitigating some of those hidden effects that we're seeing within sort of the social uh, purse as such or the social cost which come through things like um, you know mental health issues lack of accessibility all down to simple things of can i actually access an environment to me is it safe is it psychologically safe to me do i perceive it as being psychologically safe um, where we've spoken before, and I saw some of Robin's uh, tweets, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, 
that you know some of the things that you were talking about as a as, as you know as a visitor to London. You've been here before. You, you understand the city a little bit, but to understand what is going to guide you around the city. How are you going to learn the city? We can all kind of like pick up like a timeout or a lonely planet and have one route, but nothing beats sometimes just getting on your own two feet and like walking around and kind of knowing what type of route to take as well. Like what what's a good route, what's a safe route, and stuff like that. But one of the things that you were talking about when when we talk about how navigation, the the affordance of having uh, good mobility leading to navigation, leading to sort of memory, this idea of place and how you can connect and how you can interconnect with other areas uh, being a huge important for how a person builds that sort of perception of this environment is fit for me I can achieve which is such a like a, a very misunderstood thing but you were really talking about how um, I think it was the the quiet routes with regards to cycling and how that's kind of changed your perception of what it is to to go through a city so do you want to go through that and sort of explain how it's been to learn an environment but also you know some of the things you were talking about how you were grading and how perhaps technology or cities can understand how to start grading routes for people yeah um so google maps has been my uh, major source of uh navigation assistance in london um but interestingly um it it does a not the best job I found when it comes to cycling. Usually it gives you the fastest or the flattest route. And I've been using Google Maps, you know, this whole summer and then just being taken, you know, uh, it took me down Oxford Street, which is like hell for anybody. And I was just like, <laughs> couldn't you guys have thought, thought of a better route? Like this is, this is awful and it's just stressful. And, um, I went to meet my friend in Dalston and I was complaining about the bike ride there. And he's like, didn't you just take the quiet way? And I was like, what's a quiet way? He's like, the city of London um, or TFL has put together these routes, which are kind of made up of quiet side streets. Um, they use some traffic calming design. So they've got speed bumps, um, narrowed roads so that cars don't fly through them. You know, and I've heard that there are different qualities. Some quiet ways aren't particularly quiet. Someone was actually killed. I think it was the, the Queen's chief physician was killed last week on a quiet way. So, I mean, there's been a lot of... Um, criticism around them, but the quiet way too, which is what I take, what I, what I've been taking since my friend told me about it from Dalston to Bloomsbury, <clears throat> is amazing. And what what I really uh, kind of occurred to me was, you know, the quiet way might have been, might have taken seven minutes longer than the most efficient route that Google Maps provided. But when I'm using Google Maps, I've got, you know, um, one earphone in, the other out, because I don't want to be completely blocked away from the world. And I never take my phone in my pocket, so I'm really relying on the cues that Google Maps provides. So I'm in this con con constant state of, like, vigilance. And I never seem to learn it, maybe because I'm so stressed out that I can't actually, like, remember. I don't see what's around me. I'm just waiting for cues. Whereas a quiet way is a bit more of a roundabout way, but the, on the roads, there are markers around, you know, keep going straight here. It'll have, so I took the quiet way too. So there's a Q2 with an arrow and curved arrows. And, and what was crazy was I actually didn't care about the time difference. And I'm actually, I'm perpetually late, so I'm always worried about time. But it, the enjoyment of the, the route and actually, even having only used it a couple of times, 
I actually remember how to do it. And I think part of it was because I wasn't super stressed out using it. I wasn't trying to listen to some robotic voice tell me to take a left right before like an intersection, you know. And uh, and so when, in cities, wayfinding is such an, like a big thing. And especially like London, you know, the cab drivers here have to take a four-year intensive course on how to navigate the city. I think that should say something about how it may not be the easiest place to navigate. It's on a grid. You know, <laughs> God knows where half the streets are going. Um, yeah, so I think, I think you know, applying that user design kind of approach to city building and just navigation at a really fundamental level for wayfinding is, like, is, is crucial. And I mean, and I think that's, that plays a pretty you know, a, a good amount. What am I trying to say here? I think it, it, it should be considered when we're building cycling infrastructure too, is like how easy is it to use this piece of infrastructure and also know where you're going when having some markers or something to help orient you to like even your, your cardinal directions. Like I don't London, like say for like the BT tower or like the river, like I don't even know which way is north sometimes. So, you know, <laughs> some things like that would help uh, pedestrians and cyclists, I think, get around. Yeah, cool. Like going off that, well, I mean, the first thing to take from that, from my perspective, and something that we've, I think we covered in the Neuroscience of Cities playbook, which was produced between us at Centric Lab, uh, UCL, which we produced uh, for and with the guys at the Future Cities Catapult, was the idea of... Um, how someone can orientate with themselves within the city, how the environment and environmental stresses impact that kind of user experience or that whole point of view, just as you're saying, like if you are bombarded through the senses, you have an inability to perhaps just process what you want to process from a more calmer perspective to truly engage. And those, you know, those little factors are actually quite massive into how we are building our often things like social engagement or physical engagement in environments like respect we have for environments as well is a huge thing. I think that's something that is going to grow a lot more that we're going to see uh, whether it be players like Google or other players coming into the market looking at qualifying through different metrics and different you know taxonomy structures and systems what is a quality route for a person you know is it slow is it amble you know you know the, we're not all rational we don't always want to go somewhere the fastest and I think it'd be an interesting way to how we can how these tools how this science how this research can feed a technology to give agency back yeah. to people in that way. You got something to say? Yeah, I was just thinking about that. You know, um, it, I grew up in Victoria, British Columbia, which uh, I'm biased, but I'll say is the most beautiful place in Canada, if not North America. You've got mountains and ocean, and it's a wonderful place. Um, and because it's so beautiful, there are, are often, you know, for the drivers... Um, it'll say, take the scenic route this way, you know. And for someone who's, you know, studying cognitive neuroscience and looking at how people perceive the world and appreciate beauty in the built environment, you know, like, wouldn't it be cool? And I feel like we're giving away some big ideas. So if you steal this, <laughs> you get, in, get in touch. I want some of that, some of those royalties. Um, you know, like, can you give people, like, an enjoyable route through the city? Yeah. Like, what's visually appealing, you know? Like... If I had to walk 15 more minutes and got more 
visual pleasure uh, from like beautiful architecture or nice greenery, you know, instead of walking through like monotonous cut out suburbs in saving time. To, do you know what I mean? Like I would spend more time walking and I think people kind of um, intuitively do that. They, I think they choose routes that are more visually appealing and keep them engaged humans crave information, you know, like information theory and having the complexity of, of, of the built environment has been shown. Like people prefer those more, those, those more complex, um, environments because I think it offers up more information. And so when you're walking through a city, what keeps you alert? Like what keeps your attention? Maybe you need to take a route that's, you know, more pleasant or maybe let's say you had a, Josh, I think we're, I think we should probably cut this podcast and start working on this. But like, let's say you've had like a rough day at work. Like what, would be a route that would like make you feel better you know and and i think those sorts of things a city can't do that but technology certainly can help provide like a digital layer to the experience that we have with cities yeah it it feeds into that earlier point we were talking about in in that rushing of like we always have this need to move from one place to another and we're probably forgetting the journey to be almost so cliche like it it, it is changing if we can perhaps remove the necessity to always be moving we might find the time to actually enjoy the moving itself and that curiosity i think you know but compounded to that was also yes if we want to create walkable cyclable sort of uh, environments and areas we've got to understand and how all those external sort of environmental stresses from uh, noise pollution, light pollution, air pollution, you know, almost like visual pollution, which might be those things of all those visual distractions are going to impede that sort of quality of experience. Um, I think it's a lovely sort of end point that we can uh, go up on that podcast. Maybe we'll just go off and now start coding this out and start yeah. to find some very smart people <laughs> at uh, UCL and the University of Waterloo and see see how far we can get with this. But, um, Robin, is there sort of a, a lasting comment you want to say just for now? Uh, hopefully we'll do another podcast in the future, but you've been uh, you've been here in London for the summer. I know we've talked about it a couple of times, but it's it's always good to, to just hear it from a different perspective. Like, what is it about a city that brings something out? And, you know, we, we can't always copy what happens in one place to another it never works we've got to understand local environments we've got to understand what affordances are truly needed but if there's there's something you've kind of learned from really getting into the thick of london and looking and going wow this this is that little bit of magic that this city brings out that perhaps we need to start understanding its equivalent in other cities what would you feel it is about you know about london this summer that you've experienced you know, I'm, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm a, I'm a sensitive guy and I, I'm open about my feelings. I'm actually really sad to be leaving London. Um, it's been really kind of rough the last couple of weeks just thinking about my imminent departure. And I think one of the things that really stood out to me and something that London taught me and Londoners taught me was really how to experience a city. You know, um, people uh, occupy parks, um, they sit in cafes, they hang out in front of pubs. Um, they're always open to having a conversation. I mean, people were saying, like, Londoners are, are unfriendly. I think that they just don't have time for, like, bullshit small talk. I think, like, you, you can really connect with people quickly here. And I'm leaving the city, leaving a lot of, like, really good friends behind. And I think that comes from this willingness to, like, just get out of your apartment, you know. Um, it's because they're all small and difficult. Yeah. <laughs> they're all small and difficult. And there's no chance in hell anyone's owning property here. So they spend all their money money on on beer and and like prosecco to drink in parks and you know and fine cheeses to share with their friends and there's just this kind of conviviality or this 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 um 
this kind of shared experience that I think everybody here, not everyone, but like a lot of people here really, um, really value. And so, you know, if I don't make it back to London to live here, uh, what I'll take with me is this like this enthusiasm and this desire to experience everything that your city has to offer. And, and, and London has a lot to offer. So I think having people who really want to do that with a city that has something to offer them just makes us a really wonderful place. Dude, that's beautiful. Thanks very much <laughs> for taking the time to come on the podcast and the conversations and we'll keep these going in the future. Definitely. Excellent. So a massive thanks to Robin. It's going to be a shame to see him go back to his native Canada. Uh, it's been great having him here in London and I've heard great things about uh, people who have worked with him whilst his time here. His sort of joie de vivre for loving a city like London has been infectious to say the least. Uh, something we sort of joked about earlier in the episode was the surprising element of the weather that has been happening. Yes, we do know this is most likely related to effects of climate change, uh, but for a nation that has generally experienced overcasts and rain for pretty much the past 29 centuries it's great to have a little bit of a difference and enjoy some respite and actually be out in public not be scared of the elements not to be hiding from rain to actually walk the street in patience and calm and enjoyment but I did find it funny when scrolling through Twitter a few weeks ago I saw one of his tweets which basically said ah it's 17 degrees and it's drizzly this is the UK summer I came for which is uh, I think perfectly ideal for everything but uh, we covered a few things but some things that weren't really covered which I think is worth just sort of bringing back up um, people listening will uh, will often note that I have a question about autonomous vehicles. And it's not that they don't have their place, but it's it's hard to see how it's actually a solution. And you have to sort of start to really drill down to a problem in order to find a solution. It's the same thing with technology, you know, the cliche term of a technology is a solution looking for a problem. And I think actually we haven't really identified the problem to do with mobility. And I think the question asking ourselves of our culture and what we are meant to be representing and how we look for mobility and that responsibility is as important to looking at how do we have increased mobility. Arguably, we may find issues that it would be good for people to have autonomous vehicles so they can have the accessibility to reach far of places. But in, increasingly, this might lead to isolation. This might lead to people refusing or decreasing their interaction with other people on a daily basis. What if there is no cab driver even to talk to? What if there's no interface in which you interact? What if you're decreasing those little chance looks, those little chance interactions, those little chance smiles that you might find when taking public transport, those little in-jokes you might make? That increased isolation is something we have to question. And therefore, when we're starting to look at these massive sweeping technologies, these massive sweeping pieces of infrastructure that come in, such as autonomous vehicles, we have to ask a deeper question of what are we actually solving here with regards to mobility what is the human need of mobility and then actually have a bigger sort of ethics almost a socialist you know a social uh, question about what it means to move around a city and what we need from it so i think that's an important thing to to question um 
So obviously, as two cyclists, we have differences of opinions um, on what it is to share roads with vehicles, and it is a scary experience. Some research that we were recently doing uh, highlighted, uh, certainly for a lot of the UK, that uh, female cyclists are on the decrease for the fear of exposure, the fear of anger, and there is this anger that we have to understand and understand how better to share facilities. And I think whilst having uh, things like a cycle superhighway or designated cycle routes and elements like that, we fall into the pitfalls of looking at segregating people because we can't get on. And I think as a culture, we need to stop this idea of you go here, you go there, and to keep that because these things have ripple effects. They have unintended consequences that over a period of time add up and build up, and we're still seeing elements of that. So one of the questions we really do have to understand is how you know, coupled with the necessity of mobility, how we look at sharing those facilities. Because if we keep going down this line of, well, you're not allowed that, I think it forms a very negative element for what we're trying to represent with our modern cities, which are places of inclusivity and equity. And they're not they're not represented by hiding people away, pushing them into different brackets. People need their places of expression, but we also need to be able to express cohesively. Um, so that's two points I really felt was just important to reiterate at the end of this podcast. It's just, it's their subjects very close to my heart, but I think they're very they're subjects that are very pertinent to a lot of people's hearts and what we're trying to drive out of cities. Cities are places of interaction, of chance occurrences, of human-to-human interaction. And we've got to identify a way in which our infrastructure-based elements and our environmental qualities, such as noise, air pollution, even visual pollution and things like that, stop and start, you know, they stop impacting our ability to have human-to-human communication. These are the facets most important in our modern world, our modern business world, our modern social world, as we live in that in a digital world as well. The human-to-human interaction is more important than ever. And we have a, a situation where cities, biologically and cognitively and psychologically, are impacting our ability to have human-to-human communication. And so it's a bigger question that I think we really have to understand. It's something that we at Centric Lab are really involved in. And if anyone else has any ideas about this topic, then do get in touch. Just say hello to us, which is very simple, at hello at thecentriclab.com. Um, any questions, do drop us down. My name is Josh, so drop us a question. A uh, little bit of housekeeping right at the end. Obviously, if you have any questions to Robin, you want to find out more about his work, more of what he's doing, if you're listening in North America or Canada, then um, obviously you can get in touch with him via his Twitter handle, which is at Robin Mazumda. I think he does have a website as well, which is robinmazumda.com pretty easy to uh, google him he's very uh, well known he's a, a good speaker he's a good commentator he's very articulate covers a number of issues so uh, a good google search will discover him very easily the last bit of housekeeping is if you have listened to us through itunes or any other format a rating a review hopefully a positive one is gratefully appreciated it really does help make a difference um so yeah get in touch say hello if not thank you very much for your time and we'll speak to you soon bye So a couple corrections to make from earlier in the podcast when we mentioned about the pollution going down on the car-free days. We mentioned about the London Marathon. In fact, the pollution levels dropped a massive 89%. So there's a stat there that 
I accessed that from the London Evening Standard uh, website. Another correction was the quote from David Bailey, the renowned international photographer, uh, whose line, again, funnily enough, in the Evening Standard says, I've lived in London for nearly 77 years and I still discover roads I've never been down, which shows a bit of the romance of the city, which arguably is a little bit of a play on the Samuel Johnson quote, which is, when a man is tired of London, he is tired of life. 